Wow. Y'all are really kind. I haven't even said anything yet. Hey, um, I just want you to know, it's supposed to not get up to 100 degrees until about 1 o'clock. I'll have you out of here by 1230 at least, so don't worry about that at all. There are a few things in life that are quite as exhilarating as a hole-in-one. I'll never forget the time when I was the first to go in my group, set my feet, made really good contact with the ball, and I could just tell this was going to be a special moment. I watched the trajectory of the ball as it went between the blades of the windmill, and it went into the... What? It went into the plastic tube, ricocheted off a twig that I didn't even know was there and into the bottom of the cup. It was awesome. Yeah, thank you. I'm a terrible golfer. My skills belong on a putt-putt course, not on a real course. Golf can be intimidating and it can be an exclusive game and there may not be any better example of how exclusive it can be than Augusta National. It's the home of the masters, it's a place that's stunning in beauty, and it's a private club. It'll cost you about $40,000 up front to become a member, and then several thousand dollars every year after that. By standards of elite courses, though, that's not really that much of a price. It's not about the money. As a private course, there are about 300 members, and it's an unpublished list, so we don't even know all of who those 300 are. But the names that we do know are like household names. These are politicians, they're billionaires, they are people who are professional athletes in other sports. These are big shot kinds of people. And if you hope to become a member of Augusta National and have the coveted green jacket for yourself, let me just advise you, don't call them and tell them that you're interested. That'll actually set you back with them. I, for one, have decided not to let them know at all and if they call, I'm gonna play hard to get. But it's an exclusive bunch of people. And there's something about Augusta National that feels somewhat true to life. It's only the best and the brightest, the ones who are the high achievers and the big accomplishers that really belong. Life feels tilted in their favor. But there's a problem that we run into whenever we observe that in the way life seems to work and then project that onto God's kingdom. God's kingdom operates according to a very different standard, a very different set of practices. And we're going to see that this morning as we open up our Bibles to John chapter 4. I'd like to invite you to turn there. If you're joining us for the first time or maybe the first in a while, we are in this series called Unsung Heroes, where we're looking at unfamiliar acts of faith that we can imitate and character traits of God that we can trust. I'm not going to score a whole lot of points this morning in the unfamiliar category. This is a pretty familiar story, a pretty familiar account, but we are going to see things that are worth imitating in this account from Jesus in the Gospel of John, and we're definitely going to see character traits of God that we can trust as we go. So let's dive in right now to John chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Jesus has been in and around Jerusalem, and now here's what the text says. Now when Jesus learned 
that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John. And then he tells us parenthetically, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. Okay, next. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. Okay, so this is early on in John's account of Jesus's ministry. And at this point, it's a very bad thing in Jesus's mind for the Pharisees to be giving him a lot of attention. But he's gotten a lot of attention because of his words, his teaching, and the miracles that he has performed. But he knows that in order for his ministry to continue on down the course that he has for it, he needs to be away from Jerusalem for now so that he can continue on away from the watchful eye of the religious authorities like the Pharisees. So he goes north. And I have a map here to show you because geography matters in this. I know some of the details here are kind of small, but just follow my finger here. Where he's in Jerusalem around Judea down here in the south, and now he's traveling up to this area in Galilee in the north. This is where he can continue to minister, but be away from those religious authorities. Verse 4 says that he had to pass through Samaria, which is an interesting comment because he actually didn't have to pass through Samaria. It was common for Jews in this day, which we will get into in a minute, to go out of their way around Samaria, either direction, even though it added to their journey, they found it so important to stay out of this area. But Jesus, for some reason, is compelled to go right through it. So that's the setting here. And we learn here in verses five and six, the setting for the rest of this account, that he's in a town called Sychar, near Sychar, and he's about to enter into a conversation with somebody. But the dirt that he has underneath his feet has a history. And the person he's about to encounter there has a history as well. Okay, let's go on, keep reading in the story. This is what it says next. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away to the city to buy food. So Jesus is alone, and this woman shows up. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. She's a woman with a history because the Samaritans have a history with the Jews. Being from Samaria is strike one against her. And John even tells us down here in parentheses again, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. It's kind of a complicated history. We won't get too detailed, but it goes back hundreds of years in Israel's history. The Samaritans can trace their lineage back to the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But kind of in the middle there, several hundred years before this event takes place, the Samaritans had come to be because of some dramatic happenings in Israel's history, where the Assyrians had come into part of the nation, had invaded and carried off a number of the Israelites into exile. But the Assyrians' practice was to mix peoples in together to try to erase their cultural distinctives. And so the Samaritans were the group of people who were left in the land to intermarry with people who had been brought in from other nations. They were no longer pure Israelites in the Israelites' minds. Not only that, but they also had some different theological beliefs. They held to their own version of the Pentateuch, the first 
five books of the Bible, Genesis through Deuteronomy. So there are theological differences, there are ethnic differences, and the one thing that they have in common with each other is an animosity towards each other. That's strike one against this woman. Strike two, she's a woman. In this day, a Jewish man was advised to not even have a conversation with a woman, even your own wife, in public. So she comes to the well, and Jesus seems to be unaware of all of these social, social conventions. And he strikes up a conversation by saying, give me a drink. Okay, next, into verse 10. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. So Jesus says, give me a drink. She says, why are you even talking to me? And Jesus answers this way. These two things here are critical, the gift of God and the identity of the one who's talking to her. These really inform the rest of the interaction that Jesus is having with this woman. It's all about this gift of God and the identity of the one who's talking to her. And Jesus says, I have this gift and it's called living water. At its most basic fundamental sense, living water is water that's flowing. It's water that would be in a river. It's water that would be, you would find in a stream. It's water that would come up bubbling out of the ground in a well, in a spring. This is what living water means. So in her mind, that's where she goes. Okay, let's keep reading. Jesus then says, or the woman rather, says to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. So it's like you have a couple of guys who show up to your house on a bicycle and they say, hey, we're here to haul away your old sofa that you're selling. The woman looks here and says, you have nothing to draw water with. What are you talking about? How are you possibly going to give me this other water when you don't even have something to draw it with? The well is deep. Where do you get it from? But then she says, are you greater than our father, Jacob? She's proud of this land. She's proud of this particular location because it goes back so far into their history. You have Abraham, you have Isaac, Abraham's son, and then you have Isaac's son, Jacob. Jacob is the one who would be named Israel, who would have the 12 sons, who would become the 12 tribes of Israel. Jacob is a big deal. And she says, this well was given to us by Jacob. That was good enough for him. He drank from this well. He even gave, his, gave it to his livestock, which represents his own vitality, his well-being. And it was good enough for them. Why isn't it good enough for you, Jesus? And now Jesus is about to point out what the differences are. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. So Jesus draws a contrast between the water that he's offering and the water that she thinks that she needs out of this well. The difference the water, the living water that Jesus offers is eternally quenching. 
it never goes away or loses its effect. The water in this well that they're standing in front of, it's only temporary in terms of its benefit. You have to keep drinking of it over and over and over again for it to quench your thirst. But, the, but Jesus points out that this water, this living water, is something far different. It's far more significant than that. And so Jesus is offering something that she's not understanding. We should not be too critical of her, though. Think of all of the other times in Jesus's ministry when he was teaching something that the people around him were not understanding. This is common. Even the people who are closest to Jesus, the disciples, often did not get what he was talking about at first. In fact, we'll see an example of that later on in this same passage that we're in this morning. We shouldn't be too harsh about her. And I think of my own life and how slow I can be to understand the things that are contained in God's word. Sometimes we don't grasp it right away, but Jesus is offering her a gift. And what is it? Well, to see it most clearly, we need to turn just a couple pages to John chapter seven. And there Jesus is in a different scene. He's back in Jerusalem and he's at a feast called the Feast of Tabernacles. And he stands up and he says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And then John cracks the code for us on it. And he says, now this he said about the spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So this living water, this gift of God that Jesus is speaking about, is the spirit of God. Later on in the book of Acts, Luke writes about the gift of the Holy Spirit that has been given. Chapter 10, verse 45, there's the account with Cornelius. When he comes to faith, the Gentiles come to faith in Christ. And it talks about the gift of the Holy Spirit being poured out now, even among the Gentiles, even among these outsiders. So Jesus is offering this woman, back to John chapter 4, He's offering her something that she doesn't understand, but yet she knows that she's intrigued by what Jesus is giving her. And this, finally, is where we begin to see something in this woman that's worth imitating. What I would just like to call it is it's a receptive heart. The word receptive means this, means willing to consider or accept new suggestions and ideas. The woman doesn't understand yet what she's even agreeing to or what she's even looking for or what Jesus is offering to her. But we see in her a willingness to listen. She's leaning into this conversation that she could have just shut down and said back at the beginning, why are you talking to me? I'm going to leave now. But instead, she stays engaged in the conversation. And one of the first things we see about a receptive heart is that it's willing to listen. Being willing to listen means being willing to entertain the idea that we don't have everything figured out in our lives. Being willing to listen means that we slow down, we quiet down, and we're willing to listen to what somebody else has for us. This is what we begin to see in the life of this woman. And now Jesus is going to teach her uh, to listen to something different, to something inside of her own heart. Because in order for this woman to understand what this living water does, she has to be in tune with her even deeper and truer thirst. 
Let's pick back up. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband. You have had five husbands and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Jesus is uncovering the scar in her life that for some reason, this woman has burned through relationship after relationship after relationship. It points to a deeper thirst inside of her that she has tried to quench in relationships, but hasn't found it to be satisfying. It's so easy to just stop and speculate here about what's going on in this woman's life. How did she get into this mess? But I want to just not do that this morning, but acknowledge the things that are most clear. This is a woman who's carrying around more than just a water jar. This is a woman who is carrying loads of shame. This is a woman with a lot of baggage. This is a woman who probably looks back on her past with a lot of regret. This is a woman who is isolated because of it all. Earlier in, the, in this account, we saw that it was about the sixth hour. That translates into our own scheme of keeping time to around noon. It was common in this day for women to go to a well, but they would draw water together. It became like a social kind of event. And they would go to the well in the cool of the day, not the heat of the day. This woman, though, for some reason, knows that she cannot travel to the well with all the other ladies. She knows that she needs to go on her own in the intensity of the heat of the day and she's all by herself. Imagine her shame. And here she is talking to Jesus and Jesus is uncovering this massive scar in her life to get her in touch with her true thirst. This is another aspect of a receptive heart. A receptive heart listens to our deepest longings. I don't know what maybe you all are bringing in this, this room this morning with you, but I can imagine we all have some form of baggage that we bring in, some form of shame in our own lives, in our own hearts. Jesus knows. Jesus knows exactly what we carry in. He knows exactly what we're dealing with. And he wants to draw that out of this woman so that he can satisfy it. We spend our lives looking to satisfy our deepest thirst. Sometimes we chase after the next thing that we're sure will fill it in. But there's another side too where we actually achieve the things, we accomplish the things, we possess the things that we think will satisfy us. But then we're disappointed because those things actually never came through. C.S. Lewis writes about this in Mere Christianity. He said, most people, if they really knew how to look into their own hearts, would know that they do want and want acutely, deeply, something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they can never keep their promise. He goes on to talk about great careers, a great marriage, even an intellectual pursuit that's just really satisfying. All of those things can be wonderful, but they never can satisfy our deepest, truest longing. And Jesus is taking her there to that very place. That's what she needs if she's going to understand what living water truly means. 
It's another aspect of what it looks like to have a receptive heart. That we listen to Jesus' words, that we listen to our own deepest longings of our hearts, but also that we pursue and seek after truth. Jesus has just given her some deep truth about her own life, and now he's about to continue to give her even more truth. Let's keep reading. The woman brings it up. She says, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. This mountain refers to Mount Gerizim, which is right at the foot of where this well is. This well, rather, is right at the foot of the mountain. And it's a mountain that goes back deep into Israel's history as being a significant site. The Samaritans thought that Mount Gerizim was the place where the temple ought to be. Meanwhile, the Jews had built a temple in Jerusalem. So there's a dispute between them. Where's the right place to worship? Okay, let's keep reading. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. Next. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So she sees the opportunity to ask Jesus about this long-standing debate between her people and the Jews. Is she just trying to change the subject away from her past? Maybe. Is she really significantly trying to answer this question about the dispute between her people and the Jews? Maybe. Maybe it's both. But the point is that Jesus here is correcting her and saying, it's neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. But if you really must know, salvation is of the Jews. You worship what you do not understand. We worship what we do understand, for salvation is from the Jews. Jesus is Jewish. But he talks about what true worship involves is spirit and truth. These aren't two different things. Like we pursue the spirit and then we pursue truth. Or we can have one without having the other. They're one in the same thing. Some translations capitalize the S here. The ESV does not, but I think it is referring to the Holy Spirit, God's Spirit, which ties back in with the earlier part of the passage, the gift of God, the living water, which is a direct referral back to the Holy Spirit that comes inside of us and dwells inside. So the true issue here is not a matter of where to worship, but how to worship. We worship through the power of the Holy Spirit in dwelling inside of us. That is what enables us to worship in a way that is pleasing to the Father. And Jesus is the one who's bringing this out of her to show her that this is what worship is pleasing to God. It's not about where, but it's about how. And Jesus is giving her truth that she's responding to. Okay, next. What we read here now is the woman says, Go to the next slide. Yeah. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, this is back to verse 10. Remember that this is what the whole passage is about. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that's talking to you, you would have asked him. And we're about to see a reference more directly to this identity of the one speaking to her. The woman brings it up again and she says this. I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ. When he comes, 
he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. We've seen the gift of God revealed. And now we're seeing the identity of the one who's talking to her revealed. Only Jesus can give her this living water that she so desperately needs in her life. And Jesus has just said it as plainly as he possibly could. I who speak to you am he. I am this one who you have in mind as the Messiah, the one who is coming to reveal all things to you. I'm right here. This is what it means to have a receptive heart, that we would hear this kind of truth about the identity and the gift of God, and we would embrace it. Understanding that being, pursuing true is what's so important when it comes to having a receptive heart in the first place. Being receptive, again, just means to be open to new ideas, new suggestions, but that can get you into trouble if you're not simultaneously committed to truth. We live in a place, in a day, in an age where there is all kind of swirl in the air about different ideas and beliefs and perspectives. But we have to have a commitment to pursuing truth alongside of a receptivity to listen to what those ideas are. Truth is our filter for understanding what we should truly embrace. Jesus had just communicated to her who he truly is. But there's another aspect of what it means to have a receptive heart. Not only do we listen, not only do we embrace the truth, but we also respond to what we've heard. It's what we see next. Just then, the disciples came back. Remember, they'd been buying food in the city. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town and were coming to him. So look at how this woman responds in action to what she's just heard from Jesus. She goes back. She leaves her water jar there. It could have been a perfect opportunity for her to bail out of the conversation. She could have just filled up her water jar and then said, it was great to meet you. Have a great day. See you later. But instead, she leaves the water jar there. She goes out of her schedule. She's inconvenienced by it. But she just leaves it there to go back and tell people about what has just happened, who she has just met. What courage from this woman to be able to respond this way. What humility to be able to go through a conversation where somebody has just corrected you over and over. And now you're responding this way by talking about this wonderful thing that's happened in your life and asking, can this be the Christ? I think the thing that keeps us from responding in action is often a fear. It's doubt. We wonder, well, what if they ask a question that I don't have an answer to? What if they laugh at me after I share something with them? What if I just don't know what to do? This is a woman who had so little to lose socially. This is a woman who had already lost so much. There's this big contrast between what we read about here in John chapter 4 and what came a chapter prior to this in John chapter 3. That's where Jesus had this encounter with Nicodemus. Nicodemus is a man with a lot of status. Nicodemus is a man with a lot of power and prestige. He's a man who has some social standing and a lot to lose. So it's no surprise that Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night. 
He comes at night so that he won't be discovered talking to Jesus. Jesus, though, strikes up this conversation in the middle of the day, and she returns to town in the middle of the day. She had so little to lose. And I just think of our own lives and wonder, maybe if weakness is an unnecessary boundary in our own lives, in our own boldness, I'm reminded of Paul's words that he said in 2 Corinthians, where Paul said these, these words to the church in Corinth. He said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. We need to embrace our weaknesses sometimes in order for God's power to be at work, in order for us to react, respond to the gospel in the way that this woman is doing here. Let's pick the story back up. What we see is this, in between the passage we just read and these verses here, there's this conversation that unfolds between Jesus and his disciples that parallels the conversation he had with the woman in many ways. They also don't understand what Jesus is talking about because they say, Jesus, you need to eat. Here's some food. And he goes off and talks about my food is not even like, like this. My food is to do the will of the one who sent me. And it just goes over their heads. But then Jesus talks about the harvest. And as these people from the town are coming, probably dressed in white, he says, lift up your eyes and see, for the fields are white, ripe for the harvest. And right as that happens then, this comment is in here from John. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. And then verse 42, they said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this indeed is the Savior of the world. Look at the impact that this woman had for the gospel, for Christ, when just minutes earlier, she didn't even understand who Jesus was. Look at the impact that God used her to have in a town of people who were like outcasts. And she among them is like an outcast of the outcasts. Look at how God uses her so powerfully so that now she had an experience with Jesus that she told them about, and now they have their own firsthand experience for themselves. What an example worth imitating. See, if we wrap all of this up, I think we could just summarize it by saying that there's nothing that can get in the way of a receptive heart and the Savior of the world. There's nothing that can stand between it. Think about the way our world operates, and in the extreme form, the places like Augusta National, where you have to achieve and accomplish your way to belong. When it comes to the gospel, belief is the one thing that you have to have to belong. But anyone can believe. There's no standard of accomplishment or achievement. It's for those who believe. As my friend John Boyle says, we're talking about God's kingdom, not a country club. There's a big difference. So when we look at this, nothing can get between a receptive heart and the savior of the world. We see that this woman's receptive heart is worth imitating. But what do we see about character traits of God that we can trust? Here are a few. First of all, we see a God who is compassionate. 
This is the God who goes after people who the world has rejected. This is the God who loves the least of these. This is the God who wants to reach those who have been disqualified in every other sense of life. This is the God of great compassion. We also see that this is a God who knows us. He's omniscient, but he knows our condition. He knows our past. He knows our present. He knows our circumstances. He knows what's weighing us down, the things that are invisible to everyone else, but ourselves and him. He knows these things. And he is the God who initiates. Jesus didn't start every conversation like he does this one. But we do know that in a theological, big picture sense, God has initiated. Paul says in Romans 5 eight, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I can't help but wonder how Jesus might be nudging us today, tapping us on the shoulder, and maybe saying, give me a drink. Maybe he wants to strike up a conversation with us today just so that we would be better in tune with our deep thirst and so that we would understand that we would know the gift of God, the living water that only he can give us that will only satisfy and quench our deepest thirst. It's only available to him, but there's nothing that can get in the way of that in a heart's, heart that is receptive. So let's pray this morning that we would have that very kind of heart. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness, God. Thank you, God, that you would be so loving and so kind to reach out to those who are even outside the very margins of life and society. God, I pray that we would not put limits on your grace, on your mercy, on your compassion, but that we would openly embrace the fact that you love us. God, I pray that we would be people who have hearts that are soft, who listen, hearts that are humble, Lord. I pray, God, that we would embrace and accept truth from you. And Lord, that we would respond in whatever way that you have for us this morning. God, would you do a good work? And we thank you, God, for the fact that you are a good God the source of everything that is good and perfect. We pray this all in your name. Amen.